This is episode number four with Dr. Noah Kagiyama. Hello, and welcome to the Creative Strings Podcast. I'm Christian Howes, violinist, educator, and music business entrepreneur. I hope these interviews will inspire you to be creative in your life, in your art, in your business, in every way. So without further ado, let's get to it. Hi, everybody. I'm so excited to bring my friend, Dr. Noah Kagiyama, on for this episode. Uh, Noah was an incredible classical violinist, one of the best I've ever met. His abilities were just phenomenal. And he has an amazing story because he took this to a master's degree at Juilliard and at that point decided that he wanted to do something else. He didn't want to be a classical violinist. That in and of itself is amazing. But then he went into performance psychology, which is something I didn't really know much about. And having talked with Noah about performance psychology and started to implement some of these things into the way that I think about practicing and developing as a musician and as a performer in all areas of my life, they've been really game-changing for me. So I'm so excited that he's going to share these things with you on this episode. I hope you'll enjoy it. I hope you'll share it and give us feedback. I want to give a shout-out to the sponsors of the Creative Strings Podcast, my friends at the Electric Violin Shop. These are the guys where I go to get all my gear, anything I need from my Yamaha electric violins, Diodario strings, Planet Waves cables. They also deal with all effects pedals. And for a lot of people that are trying to sort out your gear, trying to figure out what you need to make your sound to support your creativity, your growth as a, as a performer, especially any bowed string instruments, there's really no resource like the electric violin shop. And I'm serious about that. I mean, I love these guys. I've known them for a long time and just very grateful to them. So I want you to go over ahead and check them out. Just go to electricviolinshop.com forward slash creative strings. Let them know I sent you and you'll even get a discount. And so with that, let's get into this amazing episode with Dr. Noah Kagiyama. Thanks for checking it out. Live here from the Juilliard School with uh, my friend, Dr. Noah Kagiyama. Noah, thank you so much for being with me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So we've talked a little bit over the last couple of years, and we even did a, a webinar for some of my uh, members at the Creative Strings Academy, I think a couple of years ago, and had you on to do a live talk. But I thought this would be great to have you as a guest of the Creative Strings podcast. And your area of specialty, I think many people don't know a lot about it. You've got incredible valuable information to pass on to people that's really useful uh, for any kind of musical performer and really a lot of other people, you know, who have to do any kinds of performance. You're a specialist in performance psychology. So just briefly, I mean, what is performance psychology? Performance psychology is an interesting term because I think most people know it as sports psychology and only in recent years as it's become more broadly applied to folks outside of athletics um, has the term performance psychology started to become used. But essentially, it's a study of the various psychological factors that impact performance, whether it's great performance or subpar performance. Um, so it's just a study of, of what gets in our way of being as awesome as we can.
So when I think of the things that get in our way, I mean, of performance, obviously being anxious or nervous or worried or something. I mean, as a violinist, you know, I've had my own struggles, sort of a short sidebar about that. I mean, at different times of my life growing up, I wasn't nervous. And then other times I was nervous about performing. One thing that was interesting that happened for me was once I started playing jazz and doing all kinds of improvisational music, I tended to get less nervous or, or I would be anxious, but about different kinds of things. And it also, I found that it was different in different venues. Like if I played in a cafe, for example, I wouldn't feel nervous at all. But if I played in a concert hall, I might feel nervous. But that's just a little bit of my struggle with anxiety. And sometimes if I show up to speak now or to teach, like today where I had, you know, I spoke at Juilliard for your class, you know, frankly, I felt a little bit nervous because it's Juilliard. <laughs> it's a big deal, you know. But anyway, that's what I think about is is nervousness and anxiety. But is there, are there other things? Nerves and anxiety, that's obviously a big part of it. Uh, it's something that we've all experienced, whether it's, you know, asking somebody out on a date or doing a job interview or getting up in front of people to perform or talk. There are other factors that, and all, all of it comes down to, you know, in that moment, are we able to get into optimal mental states, optimal physical states and optimal emotional states that are conducive to doing our best work? Um, other factors might be things like focus. I mean, if you're really nervous, it's awfully difficult to focus on the task at hand. You end up thinking about the worst case scenario, or sometimes you start dwelling on mistakes you've already noticed you made, or or things that you're afraid you're going to screw up in the future because they're difficult and you don't always nail them. Concentration is another issue, being able to just kind of quiet the mind and get into a more, um, I don't want to say meditative necessarily, but just, you know, a quiet state where you're able to get into flow and do your best. Um, even things like preparing in advance in a way that serves your performances instead of just practicing to develop your skills, which is a different kind of practice that's obviously also important. Courage is another factor. We talked about that a little bit today. You know, how do you do things on stage that might feel exposed and risky um, and, and go for them and trust yourself that you're going to be able to land it or nail it? Uh, when you need to. So there are a variety of factors that are all related in some way to nerves, worry, anxiety, but all contribute in different amounts depending on the circumstances. For listeners you may not know, but Noah and I studied Suzuki violin from the same teacher. And Noah, I think you're maybe three years younger than me. And I mean, everybody recognized you as a true prodigy of classical violin because you just got things easier. You just advanced quicker, you know. And I was, you know, a good young violinist in, in the classical world. And I studied hard and, and practiced hard and, you know, won competitions and everything. But I mean, you were years ahead of me in terms of like the difficulty of the music you were playing, your ability to just to get through it, you know, quickly. And everybody was always amazed by you. You were you were kind of this the bar. And an amazing story, I think, is the fact that you went so far through college, through master's degree, you know, as this prodigy classical violinist. And then you stopped it all, apparently because, and I don't want to speak for you, but apparently because it was kind of boring for you. I wouldn't have used the word boring. It ended up that I got to a point where I realized that wasn't actually me. I mean, I wasn't at my core a musician. Um, I like to use the word artist, perhaps more liberally, in the sense that we can all be artists, whether we're surgeons or engineers or software developers, you know, just thinking creatively and outside the box and, and trying to take whatever our craft is to the next step beyond where it's been taken. Um, but I got to a point where I realized I was never going to reach the level of violin playing that I felt I should be or ought to, um, because inherently it didn't 
mean enough to me to devote the kind of crazy time, energy, and effort that would be required for me to reach that level. Um, and that's something that I didn't really ever stop to question. I mean, I just kept doing it because it came and I did the next step and the next thing that came after that. And then one day, essentially, I was having a, a conversation with some friends on the master's program and we we're just joking what we do if we won the lottery. And for me, it was a no-brainer. I said, well, I don't know what I'd do exactly, but I know that I'd stop the violin. I wouldn't practice the next day. I'd put it away immediately in my case and, and not look at it again. And meanwhile, all of them had other ideas. They'd start a record label, a music festival of this kind, or they'd go touring and do these projects and all had to do with being a musician. And I was like, well, that, that surprised me. I thought that everybody would put their instrument away if they won a million dollars. And so that, that sort of raised some red flags in my head and made me start asking that question, you know, am I a musician at my core? Is this really what I, what I want to pursue with my life and spend my time working towards? And talking to my, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife and my parents, I realized that I had been doing this thing my whole life, but, and it served tons of purposes. I learned a tremendous amount from it and I wouldn't take it back. But that path I think was supposed to diverge at some point. And it was when I finished my master's program here that I, that I figured out what the next uh, branch of that might be. Just to be clear, we're talking about finishing your master's at Juilliard, where, you know, you were among the absolute best of the best. Uh, classical violinists in the world. And that's the part of the reason that I wanted to go down this this path of questioning because I think performance psychology for you, if I understand it correctly, is different than it is for most people. Like for me, it's about being nervous, you know, being anxious. But for you, I remember a comment that our teacher, Michael Davis, we had two teachers in common. We had Jenny Christofferson and then when later we had Michael Davis in common. And I think Michael, in a kind of loving way, one time described you as playing the violin as if you were cleaning your room. I, I don't know if you, probably you remember that. I don't know if you do, but that always stuck with me as a, as a good, you know, catchphrase to describe Noah, Noah Kageyama, the guy that can do absolutely anything on the violin, but when he plays, he seems like he might be cleaning his room. Like you seemed whatever, you know, and I'm sure it, it wasn't black and white. I know, you know, you love music and you were passionate about it. But are you one of these people that struggles with kind of instead of being nervous, like it's not that you're not going to land the shift, but is it more about that you you have a hard time concentrating or focusing because you're quote unquote bored or it's not challenging enough? I know that I definitely looked bored. This is actually something that, that Dr. <laughs> Suzuki mentioned. And I don't know if it's just my face and the way my facial expressions are on stage, but um, I was five, you know, I was playing for Dr. Suzuki and he said, you know, you sound great when my eyes are closed, but when I open my eyes, it doesn't sound good. <laughs> And he was trying to, trying to tell me basically that I looked, I guess like Michael Davis said, you know, like I was doing some chore or some routine, you know, washing the dishes that I was totally unenthused about. And, and of course, you know, there are a couple of things that you don't see underneath. One, I, I did get nervous from an early age, actually. And I did, you know, when I was playing, obviously I'd get caught up in it and, you know, it means something to me on a deep level. But I think it just got to a point where I realized it didn't mean enough to me to devote the kind of time and energy and discipline that I knew. I mean, I got to a point where I understood exactly what I would need to do to realize my potential. And I realized I wasn't willing to do that, partly through just seeing how I would respond when I had opportunities. So, for instance, I was doing the Nielsen competition in New York. It happened to be some anniversary or something. And so instead of doing it in Denmark, they did it in, in New York City. And, 
you know, I, I knew exactly what the repertoire was and I knew what I would have to be expected to play and when. I had all summer to prepare, but I didn't. Um, and even a month or two away, I knew that I was toast because I just was not putting in the time and the devotion and the energy that would be required to actually re represent myself. I don't think you're a lazy person. So, I mean, it's not like characteristic of you not to be disciplined. I mean, when you pursue something you're passionate about, such as what you're doing now as a, as a performance psychologist, and you've created this amazing course and website, bulletproofmusician.com, and you've got amazing blogs that come out regularly. I mean, I think every two weeks or something, I think I get a, a, your great, incredible blog articles. And I know you pour your heart into these things, and so you're a very disciplined person. So for you to say that the Nielsen competition, you couldn't find it in your heart to do the work required. It's not because you're lazy. So that was a sign to you. But also it sounds like when you've talked about your struggle as a performer, it sounds like it was it had to do with focus more than being nervous. Is that true or, or is that a, kind of misrepresenting you? I think the two were tied together. I mean, one, if people are really, really focused in the moment, completely caught up in the moment, you know, not thinking about the future, not thinking about the past, not thinking about pizza or what they're going to do afterwards, it's much easier to, to get lost in it. Just like, you know, when you're watching a really amazing movie um, where you're caught up in the storyline, you don't notice the little glitches or the mistakes or the popcorn around you or even what time of day it is or what season it is. And so you leave the theater and suddenly you're reminded what reality is like. And it's like, wow, you forgot that it was snowing and that was wintertime. And um, so I think when you're really wrapped up into something like that and tremendously focused, the anxiety or the nerves, it becomes a different experience. It, it sort of adds to the performance and it might be characterized better as excitement or energy as opposed to anxiety. And that's actually what sports psychologists do. They conceptualize anxiety as being what they, what they call a multidimensional construct. It's not anxiety as we think of it. It's, you know, there's the energy part of it or the activation portion of it, sort of the physiological adrenaline response where before you go on a roller coaster, some people are freaked out and worried and other people are excited and they can't wait. Um, and it's the same thing for us on stage. We have that physiological reaction. And sometimes we have performances where it's tremendously exciting and we're totally inspired and, and that energy is still is a good thing. And then there are other performances where, you know, you add to that energy a lot of worry and doubt and fear and all these other negative emotions um, that turn that energy into feeling bad. and something that we need to try to control and get rid of and extinguish. And, and we lose the ability to use that energy into our performance and instead it becomes kind of a very careful, controlled cautious sort of performance um, that's no fun for anybody involved. cautious performance I think of like oh my body is so out of control like I feel so much energy like I'm literally shaking sometimes like I've had times when my my right arm that holds my bow is shaking so hard that literally if I even put the bow on the string like I don't know what's going to happen and in those cases obviously you're trying to not be a train wreck instead of trying to give more to your performance. You're just trying to like avoid all the bad things that are going to happen. So I can really relate to that. I want to get right into some of the tips. And I know there's a tremendous amount of diving in deeper that 
people can get by either getting into coaching with you or, you know, checking out the bulletproofmusician.com again, which is an amazing blog and you've got an amazing program people can sign up for. But I just want to get some of these really huge tips because you've told me about some of them. Um, so first of all, can we start off talking about how you, pr- how you change your practice, the difference between performance practice and practice, because you told me about this before, and I think it's just game-changing. It's funny, because it's one of those things that when we hear it, it seems so simple and obvious, and we wonder why we haven't been doing it all along. And this is not something even that sports psychologists have started talking about, but it's something that, um, like, you know, the great pedagogue Galamion, for instance, who used to teach at Juilliard, he wrote a book uh, many years ago where he described the three kinds of, of things we should be devoting our practice time to. You know, one-third approximately should be on conceptual things. You know, what do we want the phrase to sound like? What do we want the sound to be like coming out of our instrument? Um, and once we have a really clear idea about that, then we can go about figuring out, mechanically speaking, how do we produce that on a consistent basis? Um, and that's where all the technical work that we do with scales, etudes, and, and you know, slowing things down and analyzing things comes into play. But that that's where we spend most of our time. A lot of us don't even really spend time on the conceptual, you know, what is my sound or what is my voice? What do I want? Um, and that takes a good bit of time as well to develop and own and clarify. Um, and that's what actually guides the technical work that we do have to do. It's sort of like um, something Leon Fleischer once said. That someone asked him a question about technique and he says, well, you only need as much technique as is necessary to say what you're trying to say. And so once you know what you're trying to say, then you go about figuring out the grammar or the pronunciation or the, or the whatnot that's required to actually say that thing. Um, not the other way around, which is how most of us have been sort of um, instinctually approaching it. And then the last third that Galamian talked about was performance practice, where you you take a piece, you start from the very beginning, and you go to the very end and, and try to make sense of it and, and produce, you know, from a big picture perspective, you know, the entire flow and the entire arc of that narrative or that performance, if you will. Performance practice basically involves doing the reverse of what normal practice usually is, because in normal practice, our goal is to improve skills. So we have to listen with an incredibly keen ear to all the different things that are going on, the things that we might be missing, the things that we're doing well, and the things that we need to fix and adjust and tweak. And so we do a lot of more sort of analytical, um, slow, methodical practice where we're experimenting and listening carefully and stopping and, and fixing mistakes and doing things in chunks and different rhythms and all these different tools and tricks we have to try to hone our ability and our skills and refine these passages. The thing is, on stage, we only get one try. You know, we have to do it all in one take. And so if we get caught up into analyzing and, and logical, methodical um, thinking about what we're doing and, and too much planning and whatnot, it interrupts the automaticity of all the work that we've done in the practice room. Because in the practice room, we've tried to make all these motor movements coordinated and automatic and timed exquisitely so that we can just do them without thinking about it. But once we get into that cautious mode where we're, you know, we're questioning things that are coming up or we listen to something and we're comparing it to what we have in our head or, you know, we're dwelling on these mistakes that we made that we've never made before, trying to analyze and figure out how they happened, suddenly we're no longer in the moment and we start getting more anxious, more worried, more nervous, more scared, more tight. And it all starts going downhill pretty quickly from there. So our ability to just play something from beginning to end without keeping score. Um, I think John Cage said something along the lines of, you know, don't try to analyze and create at the same time because they're different processes and and they absolutely are. Um, So the ability to just create and stay in creation mode for as long as you need to and then you're done. 
um, is a skill that, that takes some work. It takes some discipline, mentally speaking. First of all, thank you. That's amazing to hear you say all this. And, and every time we talk about it, just a little bit, it just gives me so much food for thought just to reconceptualize how I approach what I do as a performer. But what is performance practice? You've just said that there's three types of practice and the third type is performance practice. And then it's where you sort of start the piece from the beginning and go towards the end. I mean, it's sort of like when you do performance practice, that's like you pretend that you're in a performance, right? And you perform the piece. Is that essentially what performance practice is? Yeah, I mean, there's multiple levels of it and your creativity is really only the limiter here. So performance practice in the early stages of learning something might be getting a video recording device or, you know, everyone nowadays has an iPhone or an Android device of some kind. You just put that up on a stand and um, have a go at the piece and try to bring your absolute best um, performance to that moment. Um, and, and it might be a train wreck because you realize as you're playing through the piece that, wow, you know, there are lots of gaps that I didn't realize were here. There's sections that I don't know what I'm trying to say or I don't know what I'm doing or sections that seem to be okay when I played them in tiny chunks, but when I string them all together, I can't sustain the high level of technical excellence that I expect of myself. There might also be places where you find your focus departing and you, maybe you get bored and you start thinking about lunch or something that's going to be on TV later. And so these are all things that you wouldn't otherwise realize about the security of your performance. And you, know, you just don't realize what's going to be missing from your actual performance until you give it a try in somewhat simulated conditions. And certainly as time goes on, you get better at it. There should be fewer and fewer gaps, hopefully, and, and you sort of build up an endurance, not just mentally, but also physically. And you can start increasing the stakes. You could start, you know, having a friend listen in on you as you give a performance. You could start performing it for more people. You could perform it in public venues that still don't feel like a lot of pressure. It's sort of essentially build up a hierarchy of situations that make you feel increasing pressure and start building up these, you know, actual data points of tiny wins or tiny victories of if you will, at each level before moving to the next one. So then eventually get to a point where the next jump up doesn't feel like that much of a stretch. So it's sort of like, and I don't know if this is a great metaphor, I don't know too much about baseball, but you know, you don't usually go from being drafted out of high school to playing in the big leagues. You usually go for the farm system. Single A, double A, triple A, you know, you build your way up and build confidence at each level, knowing that, okay, the next level is going to be more intense, but it's not going to be like being dropped into a pool on day one of swimming class expected to swim the butterfly back and forth a couple times. Okay, but one of the things that you said to me confuses me a little bit. I mean, because I think if I start a concerto, for example, I mean, most people, myself included, I think it's going to be a few weeks before I'm going to be even close to being ready to perform it. So are you actually suggesting that someone should start doing performance practice when they really haven't got it under their fingers yet? I think you can do a little bit. And certainly if, if you're just sight reading a concerto, you know, trying to sight read Tchaikovsky is not going to work so well for you. But there are certainly sections that you can perform. You don't, it doesn't have to be the entire movement. It can just be, you know, the exposition or got it. just a sight. Because you want to get a sense of, instead of just picking out specific measures that you spend forever on tweaking, you want to get a sense of how it fits into everything yeah. um, and how it develops over time. And so I think the other thing, too, is performing will give you an idea of what are the biggest... I had a student who was, was really cute about this. She said that she caught herself spending too much time working on imaginary problems. And, you know, she's British, and so she has this accent and that it all sounds very charming and, and funny. But I was curious. I was like, well, what is... What, I don't even understand what you're saying. Like, what is an imaginary problem? And she was basically saying that, you know, if you just take a piece and you think about the things you need to work on, you can get stuck working on these things things like little notes or little passages or just single shifts for way too long 
When in reality, those things may not be the biggest problems that you have in this piece. Hmm. Um, so when you when you give it a go, when you play the first page or the first two pages all in a row, you might discover based on prioritization, you know, what are the biggest gaps of the whole? What are the things that actually stand out the most instead of these little tiny nitpicky items that are certainly important and need to be there at some point, but maybe not just quite yet. I think people may still not realize how important this, I mean, to me, this was really game changing. I mean, part of being a great musician or being great at anything, I think is just being critical, a critical thinker, like being aware of what you do and understanding the problems and and solving those problems and stuff. So I've always kind of taken pride in that. (laughs) But when you talk to me about this, I realized like, wow, this is really a new idea that I've never really done. I mean, performance practice is really important. And yeah, it was kind of a game changer for me because you hear about visualization a lot. And I'm assuming that you're, you know, a fan of visualization, but it's never, for me at least, alone been enough for me to get rid of like anxiety when it really mattered. But this performance practice idea, you've suggested things about it that'll help you really overcome that anxiety in the performance. And obviously, because you're giving it your all and you're putting it on video, and so you're simulating the conditions of the performance. So give me some other things, because you've mentioned some other things you can do to sort of simulate that high-pressure environment and really take this performance practice to its like kind of ultimate level, if you don't mind. Sure. I mean, one of the things that we experience most is this adrenaline surge in performance situations. And we can't simulate that quite so easily, but we can simulate enough of the physical things that happen that it gives us some practice in handling it. Because whether it's it's simulated nerves or real nerves, what we have to do mentally, what we have to do physically, it remains the same. We have to get focused. We have to be in the moment. We have to keep our key muscles loose and we need to be able to go for it. So one of the things that I've had students do is, um, and I think this is something that's been done increasingly, not just me suggesting it, but, you know, running up and down some stairs, doing some burpees, um, push-ups, holding, you know, not not plank on your elbows, but plank like in a push-up sort of position, you know, where you get your arms into it and your arms start shaking and um, doing a lot of these physical things to get your heart rate up and start sweating and your muscles tingling and feeling tight and feeling stiffer and not quite as much under your control and even your hands. Actually, I share a wall with someone here who is a, a flutist and won the number competition once upon a time and she used to test herself by rolling out of bed at four in the morning, you know, grabbing her food, you know, not brushing her teeth or even clearing the cobwebs from her eyes, but just rolling right out of bed, grabbing the food and see if she can give the most compelling performance of whatever it is that she was working on, like just at four in the morning. So there are a variety of ways in which, and and the better we know ourselves, the better we know what happens under pressure, the more effectively we can prepare for those things. So actually something I did the other week was I went through my class and we asked each other, you know, what are the things that get to us most? And, And for everybody, it's something slightly different. I mean, for one person, it was having to wait, you know, way too long and get cold and not being able to play the instrument. And for another person, it was, it was it's some, something as seemingly trivial as, you know, strings being out of slightly out of tune. Um, another person had a problem with the music stand on the piano being up instead of it being down. And these fluster people, these are the things that, they do. that bug somebody and just get on their nerves to the point that they can't perform at their best. 
Right. It's so, so everybody's got something, it sounds like. Right. We all tend to have these things. If we look back at our performance experiences, we can usually kind of pull out some themes from the things that have gotten to us. Would that be like what I said if I'm playing like in a, in a prestigious venue or a classical venue where everybody's dressed up? Would that count among those things? Yeah, I mean, it certainly could. I mean, that's a little bit harder to simulate, but you could certainly have friends dress up. And I mean, even things like in, in the classical music scene nowadays with auditions, some things that get to people include the screen that you can't see people, but they don't often practice playing for people without being able to see them. Hmm. So when they suddenly walk out and they see the screen, there's people in front or behind the screen, they suddenly start thinking about that and they have a difficult time not thinking about that. So just practicing with a screen in front of, of you know friends sitting behind it. These also sound like the kinds of excuses people make. I mean, am I right? Or yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's like for me, I know that, I mean, I'm not trying to make an excuse, but I know that I could say like, oh, I always get nervous and I got nervous because I was at Juilliard. And, mm-hmm. But somebody could interpret that as an excuse, like, right? But it, but it also could be real for me. Right, right. You I know, mean, like really when I get nervous is if yeah. I'm playing in a, you know, I was at Lincoln Center, I got right, nervous right. playing at Lincoln Center. But some people, I think they make excuses too. So, but either way, the point is you're saying, well, you need to overcome it by simulating it. Is that right, what you're right. saying? I think for me, and this is just off the top of my head, but I think an excuse really becomes an excuse when you use it to justify not doing more to prepare. Mm. Um, and maybe that's not the most eloquent way of putting it, but... No, that makes sense. So you're saying, okay, whether it's real or not, right. well, you need to address it, and the right. way to address it is to simulate whatever that thing that bothers you is, and then do performance practice. In other words, mm-hmm. do a performance under those conditions. So right, just, right. I mean, if I can review, you're saying like, you want to get your heart rate up basically, because that's similar to be, I'm sorry, I'm not a scientist, mm-hmm. but that's like, if you get your heart rate up and you're sweating and you get your muscles like activated, that that's going to be similar to this experience that you naturally feel of being under heightened pressure physiologically? It's not going to be exact, but it's going to be similar enough that it'll give you some practice at focusing past all that. Focusing on, for instance, you know, staying in the moment, not keeping score, really trying to create. And I mean, even simple things like, you know, rather than thinking about the mechanical details of playing your instrument, really focusing on sound or, you know, staying in a groove or just kind of having a, an internal pulse going of, you know, where the line is going, how you're trying to shape things. Um, you know, when people talk about, you know, focus on the music, I mean, those are the things that they mean. Oftentimes, they just haven't been particularly well articulated as to exactly what you're focusing on the moment. Because a lot of times when you ask somebody, what were you thinking about in these great performances, they'll say nothing. To me, I think my understanding is they say nothing because they don't remember thinking specific thoughts. And they weren't thinking about anything so long that they were able to kind of encode it into their memories. They were continuously sort of like playing Guitar Hero or something like that. I mean, if you try to analyze what went wrong, you're going to miss what's coming up. And if you look too far ahead, you're going to miss what's happening right now. So the ability to, almost like when you're sight reading as well as a classical musician, stay in this very narrow window of time that relates to what is happening right now, um, one kind of prevents you from, from getting too nervous or snowballing out of control and remembering too much of what actually happened in a great performance, but also you know, sort of part of the definition of what it means to be in the zone and 
and I've actually sort of lost what the question originally was. No, that's awesome because because I, I get the sense that you're talking now about what you should be focused on, right, right. which sounds like a whole other line of questioning for you. Like, in other words, a great performance is a performance that you're in the zone and you're not necessarily thinking about one thing. You're kind of thinking about everything. You become a part of this continuous moment. You lose yourself right. in the process of making the art. My question was about the different ways that you can simulate the performance and the specifically raising your heart rate is one. And that could be by doing push-ups, like you said, or planks, or I'm assuming it could also be like running around the block. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's just like anything. So nobody has an excuse. Like if you're in a room, you can do push-ups or jumping jacks. If you've got weights, you can do weights. You can run around the block, whatever, get a sweat up and then practice your piece, perform it, record it. Record it on your phone if you have to, voice memo recorder, right? Or set up your iPhone on video record and do it that way. That way you can watch yourself and listen later and practice the entire performance of the piece. And this is such a big deal because then later you can come back and you can find out what actually happened. And then the more you practice performing, the more you're going to have a chance to actually overcome those anxieties or those distractions. Is that right? Well, you'll have a much better idea of what is likely to go wrong in a performance. So you'll be able to practice specifically those things. And the other thing is you want to do this multiple times. You don't want to just run around the block and play the first movement of something and leave it at that. You want to do this multiple times so that you get used to seeing what's going to happen under pressure and under these sorts of circumstances. And the other way to do it is you want to overlearn um, and this is not to say that you don't want to spend time on the ends of things, because I had a bad habit of spending too much time on the beginnings of pieces and not on the ends. But you do want to overlearn the beginning because that is the hardest part. I mean, the first note, wow. the first measure yeah. is the hardest thing to to get out because you're you're more nervous than you're going to be once you get into wow. it. Um, so you're running around the block, getting your instrument out, and going for it, really letting loose and, and giving your absolute best performance of the first phrase or the first, well, first 60 yeah. seconds, say. And then putting your instrument down, putting the recorder on pause, going for another run around the block. I mean, doing this, you know, five, six, seven times in a row, taking notes, watching it back later, and then repeating it maybe several times through the day um, for at least a few days, maybe even a week or two leading up to your performance. Oh, oh, oh I was going to say, I thought you were going to say you should be doing this like all the time, like whenever you practice, basically. I mean, you I certainly mean, could, but it, it's especially important in the days leading up to a, an actual high-pressure performance. And I guess it depends how much an individual struggles with these issues. I mean, if I'm just going to go down and play at a local club at night and everybody there is going to be, you know, drunk or whatever, and I'm just playing like really easy music or something, then maybe I don't need to do any of these things because I'm always relaxed in that circumstance. But if I know that I'm going to be showing up at Juilliard for a high-pressure performance and everybody's going to be judging me, then I should be doing this a lot, you know? I would actually argue that taking it easy in some performances is perhaps not doing yourself favors in the mm. sense that, um, I don't know how many people will remember Brandon Roy. He was a Portland trailblazer for maybe five years. Um, he had to cut his career short because of knee injuries, but um, he was an all-star. I mean, I think he's rookie of the year and he was all-stars for, I think, perhaps every year that he was in the league. And when asked, Kobe Bryant said that Brandon Roy was his toughest cover. Like this was the toughest guy in the league for him to guard. And so one year when when they were both at the All-Star game, I think this was Brandon Roy's first All-Star game, he saw Kobe Bryant there and Kobe was going hard relative to what expectations would be of an All-Star game, which is, you know, usually just don't get hurt, have a good time, you right. know, soak it up, enjoy the fans. And Brandon Roy was like, what are you doing? Like this is crazy intense for an All-Star game. And Kobe Bryant just gave him a little bit of advice. He said, you know, we all have a switch that we could flip on and off, you know, this intensity switch, if you will, or the seriousness with which we take things. And he said, 
you know, I've, I've learned over the years that it's, it's best not to mess with that switch mm. because you might find yourself in a situation someday wow. where you need to flip that on. You can't find it. Wow. So he said it's easier just to turn that switch on from the very beginning through the whole season until you've played your last game. Just keep that switch on. Oh, man, that's amazing. And I think for musicians, it's a very natural tendency for us to, to kind of appraise the situation. Say, you know what? Easy gig. People are drunk. Or, you know, it's just people I already know. And music's not too difficult. I've done a wedding, this Nobody's times. listening. Right. Whatever. It's very easy to kind of put it on cruise control in, in a manner of speaking or autopilot. But then that deprives us of an opportunity to really practice bringing it every single time, no mm. matter what it is. And so we end up getting, over the course of time, less real performance experience, if you will, from both a mental and a physical and emotional perspective. That's great. So I want to stick with this idea of performance practice. The reason we do performance practice, and again, it's performing the entire piece or maybe a section of a piece or whatever, but it's like giving our all and pretending, like really buying in like, okay, here we go, three, two, one, and I'm going to perform as if I'm in front of Carnegie Hall. So you said one one big thing you can do is get your heart rate up and then do the performance. Another thing you said you could do is like, hey, mom, come and listen to me perform and just sit there and just pretend you're the audience. And I'm going to perform this whole piece for you. You know, or I could ask my wife to come or, or whatever, or your kids or, you know, and then you can keep ramping it up. Maybe you could invite people over for a party to your house, maybe some friends and say, okay, I'm going to give everybody a short performance now, 15 minutes, you know. Okay. But there's other things you've told me about too, that you could do. And another one you talk about is distractions during performances. So how do you simulate performance situations where you might be distracted? One of the great things with distractions that is that it almost, again, doesn't matter what the specific distraction is, because it's usually going to be a distraction that we weren't expecting. That's kind of how distractions happen. <laughs> um, so as long as we get used to being able to refocus on what we are doing in the moment, it doesn't matter if the distraction is like a puppy that's gotten loose in the middle of a performance or if it's, you know, obnoxious heckler or something like that or, you know, something breaking backstage or the lights going out. Because regardless of what any of those specific distractions are, we need to get back into the moment to be focused on the music, as it were, again, you know, be able to disregard and focus past those things. And so this is kind of a fun thing. You know, you can have a, a friend help you with, whether it's, you know, throwing little bits of paper at you as you're playing or playing exactly what you're playing, but in the wrong key or slightly out of tune or at a different rhythm, you know, having a metronome on or having the TV on or trying to play one thing while you're hearing something else in your headphones. Um, whatever it is that you already know distracts, you can certainly practice for, but you could also practice for unexpected things that you don't know are coming. You know, with my students, again, I asked them what gets to them. And one of the students um, was talking about how, you know, external comparisons, you know, just hearing all these really amazing people in the warm-up room beforehand and, mm. and people, um, you know, kind of trying to, I guess the word is humble brag, saying things about themselves and, you know, couched in a humble sort of way, but really they're just trying to brag. So these things get to her. And so what some of the students did is as she started playing, you know, they, they crowded around her and started saying some of these things that drive her crazy. And then one student shouted out, better than you are and she just, <laughs> she just lost them because the, the goal of this exercise was to see if again in this sort of silly situation bring their absolute best performance and their absolute uh, laser-like focus and so if they they even cracked a smile i knew that they were distracted so that it's called the smile test and mm. the idea is to see if they can be so focused that 
you know, they don't smile at all or, or change their, you know, facial expression. So you're that saying that these students, she was performing? Yeah, just in class. She was performing in class and all these people were trying to do all these things to her right, while she was right, performing. Right. Did she smile or did she? she lost it? Like she just started oh, okay. laughing. Um, and so she failed the smile test. This is kind of like what comedians do, right? On like Saturday Night Live, everyone's, you see them break character, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, they, yeah. they, isn't that kind of like a similar kind of thing? Yeah. Okay. So these are amazing. Now, could you set like random alarms on your phone just to go yeah, off? Yeah, certainly could, right? Like right. you could like for two minutes from now and then another yeah. minute and yeah. until your alarm just goes off while you're playing the piece. Right. Or, right. So you really all these things, I mean, playing with headphones, playing like, – what mm-hmm. if you had an accompanist on the piece play different like just like mess up like yeah, on purpose yeah. and change the tempo? Or, or even – Drops places, go to different places. Absolutely. Or or you can even just hire a really bad one who would do it <laughs> you know, naturally and, and it'll almost be more authentic that way. And throw you off because it was it was so authentic and you know this reminds yeah. me this reminds me of a thing for for jazz students um, you know and it's so applicable man because you know when you're a classical musician if you're a first violinist and you have an accompanist that accompanist is supposed to follow you right and that means you lead the downbeats with your scroll and you push the time and pull the time and they're supposed to follow you right same thing in a string quartet a lot of times the first violinist or somebody is like kind of leading and everybody's supposed to follow them right but in jazz it doesn't really work that way you may or may not know this but once you set the tempo and you count it off typically your drummer and your bass player and your and your pianist or whoever your rhythm section is they're going to go where they think that you set the tempo and then they're going to stay there and so you can't say like follow me. They're, no, no. This is the tempo. We're here. This is our job. We're setting the same pulse through the entire thing. It may naturally speed up or slow down, but it's kind of taboo to like be like, oh, actually, let's go faster or whatever, right? So a lot of beginning jazz musicians that I know, especially a lot of string players that come from classical background, it freaks them out because they practice a song at a certain tempo. And I'm like, wherever the rhythm section puts it, even if you don't think, maybe you counted it wrong or maybe you didn't count it wrong, probably you're going to have to stick with that. And also, like, I mean, I'm used to playing with, you know, um, I've played with some really world-class drummers and, and world-class rhythm sections. But then I go around the world and I play with different players and sometimes they're they're not the same quality. But even if they are the same quality, it's just people are different, especially in jazz, you know, that's like the way that somebody feels and I mean, in classical too, you know, I mean, that's reality for a jazz musician. It's like sometimes the band's going to play it slower, faster. You need to live with that. So you should practice the, the piece at different tempos. Absolutely. You should have a different accompanist and have people throw you off and all these things. Because these are kinds of things that do mess with me. If I'm a leader on a gig and I've got a band and I feel like, oh, man, this is so much slower oh, now the audience is going to hate me because I wanted it to be at this tempo. Well, I should have to be able to turn that around somehow, right? I should be able to make it work at the slower tempo. The quicker we can get on task and back on focus and just make the most of it, the better we're going to be able to do and the better we're going to be able to feel about it. There's actually this interesting study about middle school or, or elementary school kids in that age range who were part of the study of throwing beanbags into buckets. So one group of students was throwing these beanbags into buckets two and four feet away from them. And the other group was throwing beanbags into a bucket three feet away. And after, I think it was six weeks of, of you know gym class and training at this, they were then tested on their ability to accurately throw these beanbags into a bucket three feet away. So you would think, in theory, that the students who practiced at three feet would be better at three feet. But in reality, the students who only practiced at two and four, never at three, wow. actually were much more accurate. That's amazing. So this idea of of varying how we practice, faster, slower, louder, softer, playing things like your improvisation class, you know, playing things that are supposed to be happy, um, 
sad or playing them sarcastically or um, suspensefully or mysteriously. You know, finding ways of varying how we play things actually gives us a much more robust you know, motor skill set, as it were, to, to be able to produce a wider range of things when we're called upon to do so in the moment. The takeaways I'm getting are, again, raise your heart rate, you know, various ways, but also simulate being distracted through all kinds of different ways that we just talked about. That could include, like, musical ways, like changing tempos, having things go wrong, (laughs) but also having people throw spitballs at you or yelling stuff or heckling you. Or maybe you could stand, like, in the middle of an intersection and perform or something like that. As long as it's safe. Yeah, right. (laughs) Or, you know, I don't know. Yeah, stand, you know, outside a tailgate party of a football game where nobody's going to actually hurt you, but it's naturally distracting environment. Go perform in your backyard. Would people be freaked? I think a lot of people are freaked out playing in their backyard. Yeah, they very well could be. So it's like just put yourself in different Mm -hmm. scenarios. So is there anything else we're missing? I mean, basically, I mean. I think the number one rule is just to practice not keeping score. Mm. Like not analyzing or monitoring whether it's going well or going poorly. Because I've heard too many stories of of students who, you know, nailed something that they rarely nail in the practice room. And they're so happy about it on on stage. And the moment's like, I can't believe I nailed that. And they're giving themselves like this mental high five. And suddenly they screw something up that's really easy because they were not Mm. in the moment anymore. Because that's very difficult for us to do because it's exactly the opposite of what we practice every day in the practice room. So if in that moment we could practice not keeping track of whether something was good or bad, but just creating in that moment, that is the fundamental mental skill that we'll have to be able to whip out on command in a pressure situation where how we sound matters more than it does anywhere else. So it's a very difficult thing to do if we haven't practiced it in advance. So the goal is to be focused. Absolutely. It's to be focused on the music. So now I have to ask, and I'm sorry, this is probably a naive question, <laughs> but do you practice training your awareness on different things? Absolutely. Another way of putting it might be that, you know, we spend a ton of time on the physical scripts, you know, sequencing the motor movements that are required to be able to execute what it is that we were trying to say. But we don't spend as much time or almost any time sequencing or practicing or choreographing in advance the mental scripts, as in what exactly is the most helpful thing for me to think about right before I start playing? Or as I start playing, what are the most helpful things for me to keep my attention completely, you know, laser-like focused on as I'm playing? Once we can figure out what those things are, we can then practice doing that regardless of the situation. But if we find ourselves getting distracted as we're doing this performance practice, you know, people are yelling at us or there's a recording going on. Once we notice that, oh, my attention has gone to, you know, the sudden explosion on the TV or to something my friend said, we can take note of where that happens or what our mind typically goes to. Because A, 
it might mean that we don't have a clear enough idea of what exactly we should be thinking about at that point, or it means that we just haven't trained ourselves to be able to control our focus. It's like, you know, how we'd be driving down the road sometimes and realize that you've not really been paying attention to driving your car at all. You've just been sort of on cruise control mentally. And so we want to be able to pick up on when our mind starts to go somewhere else as soon as it happens, even before it happens, so that we can kind of get our attention right back where it needs to be. I think of this as like having a looping list in my mind. It's kind of like if you go to sit in an orchestra or in a string quartet, you should have a checklist in your mind like, okay, am I in tune? Okay, who's giving the first cue? You know, am I listening for the subdivisions? Like who has the melody here? Right? Like these are these things that are just drilled into us. If you're on a football team, then you would be like, okay, make sure I'm lined up on the lines, listen for the count, whatever it might be. Like just the little, it's kind of the same it sounds like. So it might be like, okay, at measure four, I'm going to remember to focus on my elbow position. Or, I mean, is that the same kind of thing? It won't be as technique related, ideally. Because once we start thinking about technique, then we start getting self-conscious and, you know, over-controlling it. So for musicians, oftentimes it's, it's usually somewhere in the area of sound or rhythm. If we're really focused on kind of blending or matching styles or, or hearing exactly what we want coming out of our own instrument or kind of feeling this internal pulse or where the line is going and how things are shaping. And I mean, those are the things usually sensory in nature that help us. So for instance, I mean, tennis example, instead of thinking about our footwork per se, we might be thinking about having light feet or instead of thinking about what exactly our arm needs to be doing as we're serving just thinking about snapping the wrist. So it's kind of a big picture type cue that reminds us of what's the most adaptive or helpful thing to be thinking about at the time. Or even, you know, keep your eye on the ball is such a cliche thing. But we often actually aren't looking at the ball as right. carefully as we really could be. So instead of saying keep your eye on the ball, which is easy enough to do, saying something like count the number of rotations of the ball from the time it leaves your opponent's racket to the time it gets here. I mean, that is that is keeping your eye on the ball. I mean, if you're so focused on the ball, in that sense, then everything else is going to come a little bit more easily. So, okay, let me see if I can get this right then. If I'm playing a piece of music and I want to be focused on the right thing, you're saying I shouldn't necessarily focus on my elbow position. Maybe that would be something that I need to focus on when I'm trying to learn the motor right, skill. Right, exactly. Like if I'm trying to learn this shift, but during the actual performance, I don't want to focus on that motor skill as much. Maybe it'd be like, think about the long phrase or think about singing sound right, right, exactly. or, or, even or just, just grooving or right. something like this. Or even just remembering what a really easy, smooth shift feels like as opposed to remembering which specific parts of your body need to be in a specific place for the shift to, to happen. Because you're exactly right. You worry about those things and you figure them out in the practice room ahead of time with the logical, analytical, sort of slow, thoughtful practice. And once it becomes more and more automatic, you don't want to interrupt that automaticity by thinking about too many um, sort of micromanaging type elements of that. That is really amazing. And every time I talk to you about this, I realize that there's so much more I can get from paying attention to not just performance practice, but I think learning more about my own capabilities, my limitations, extending them, expanding them through 
understanding, I guess, psychology. I, I mean, I feel embarrassed because I can't really talk about it close to as intelligently as you can talk about it. But the goal, it sounds like, is to be in the moment when you perform uh, to be 100% focused on the music. I mean, I'd love to talk to you, you know, just more and more about how we can train our awareness. You know, I mean, as a jazz musician, one of the things that comes to my mind is when you're a jazz musician, you're improvising. So a lot of times that means you don't have to worry about missing a shift because you don't have to take that shift. You can stay in first <laughs> position. Like, uh-huh. you don't have to play a double stop, just play a single stop. You know, it's like play things that are safe. But I think one of the things that really stresses out jazz musicians for example, you mentioned this earlier, like if you hear somebody that's amazing, what if you're going to have to take a, a solo, an improvised solo after somebody that was just did something spellbinding? That throws people off. I felt shut down before, like, how can I ever follow that? Or just for whatever reason, just feeling like I don't have anything to say. I'm so tired of, you know, hearing myself play and you know, having negative thoughts. So we get stuck, you know, for various reasons. You know, all of us as artists, I think we have negative self-talk that happens. We have defeating kinds of thoughts, you know, worries and doubts. I mean, I think for a lot of people, they come up, you know, and I'm not embarrassed to say that definitely that happens to me. Sometimes I have days when I feel like everything I do is great. And other times there's days when I just feel like, man, I can't stand a single sound I make, you know, so whether it's focusing on the music or focusing on the sound or focusing on why you do it. Do you think about all these other things? I would think when they play music, maybe some people think about, I don't know, all the money they're going to make or, you know, their religious conviction, you know, or they have a deep sense of confidence in themselves. Is that good enough or or does it have to be this losing yourself in the moment of the music? I think the losing yourself is the funnest thing. I mean, because these external things can certainly be great and, and helpful, but a lot of times we've been doing what we do so much that I think we forget how cool it actually is. A lot of people would say, you know, I'd give my right arm to be able to do what you do. Not actually, because then they wouldn't actually be able to do what you're doing. But, <laughs> but you know, they they want it so badly because they it just seems really cool to them. And and I think because we hear ourselves play every day, it's sort of like looking at ourselves in the mirror. I don't think we are attractive to ourselves because we see every little tiny flaw and every mm. little tiny feature, and it's just not new to us. But to somebody else, it, it's completely mind blowing. And so when we really just listen, I mean, I've had some students do this like one note meditation thing where they just play play a note on their instrument but really listen because if you've never heard sound coming out of your instrument before you know imagine you're this Martian or this alien that comes to this planet or a baby that's never heard a violin or a flute or even a drum sound before you know just hear the sound as if they've never heard sound before a lot of people actually get chills just just hearing it because the experience itself of sound is pretty remarkable and amazing and sort of miraculous in and of itself and then you combine that all these different elements of music, harmony, rhythm, different you know, voices all contributing together, different instrumental sounds, timbre. I mean, you mix all that stuff together, and it's really a pretty remarkable thing, especially at the level that, that you and most other people listening to this are at. I mean, even if we could go so much further with our art, where we're at is, is vastly further along the continuum than where we started. And I'm sure you remember how crappy we all sounded when we started. It's been such a long way away from there that I think we sometimes forget how awesome it really is to the be magic. where we're at. Yeah. That, no, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, the magic. And I mean, I'd love to close with that idea because I think, yeah, this idea of the performance psychology, I'm realizing as I'm talking to you about it, every time we talk about it, that there's so much deeper that I can, I'm not even scratching the surface of what you have to offer. And it, it's exciting to me because that's what we need to all be after is the magic every day and reclaiming our passion as musicians, as performers, whether we're creative musicians, whether we're composers, whether we're interpreters. But that's great. I want to close on that. I mean, thank you for these practical tips. 
um, because I think they're really helpful. Just getting even under the surface with you has helped me tremendously to just find these ways to want to go deeper. And I can't tell people enough. Check out the bulletproofmusician.com, bulletproofmusician.com with my friend, Dr. Noah Kagiyama. You should need to sign up for his blog there because he sends out really thoughtful articles, I think every two weeks or so. There's no fluff. They're just they're great articles related to the stuff we've been talking about. And he's got a great course, um, and I think it's called Beyond Practice. Is that right? Beyond Practicing, yeah. Beyond Practicing. It's a wonderful course. You should sign up for it, the bulletproofmusician.com. Is there any other kind of parting comments you want to offer, Noah? No, I think that was a great place to leave it. Yeah, thank you. Well, thanks again, Noah, and thanks for bringing me to Juilliard. It's been a real honor. Absolutely. It's been great having you here. Take care. Thanks for sticking around through today's episode. I know I got a lot out of this, and I hope you did too. Please feel free to share it, tweet it, send me an email at chris at christianhouse.com if you've got something you'd like to share with me about this or any questions. And be sure to check out Noah's great blog at bulletproofmusician.com. Look up the Bulletproof Musician. You can find links and all kinds of stuff we talked about here at the show notes page at christianhouse.com. And lastly, I want to thank our sponsors at the Electric Violin Shop. If you're a bowed string player and you're looking for tools to help you unleash your creativity, check out the Electric Violin Shop. Go to electricviolinshop.com forward slash creative strings. We'll see you next time.